Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. This is the place to learn how to get through your worst rock bottom and start to embrace adversity. I'm your host, Petra Belzebor. I'm a therapist and a life coach, but my biggest learning is from my own rock bottom. My story includes being raised in a cult, dealing with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism. But along the way, I've learned to turn my entire life around to one of success, joy, and fulfillment. So in this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life who've done the same. I'll be teasing out the skills and tools necessary, as well as using my own experience to teach you how to turn your adversity into your biggest advantage. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Today I'm so excited because all the way from Johannesburg in South Africa on Skype, hopefully our technology will be in our favor, but we've got Niven Posma, who is not, as was misheard on memorable occasion, Kevin Costner. Apparently that mix-up does take place. Welcome to the show, Niven. Thanks, Ditcha. How are you this morning? Very well. It's been a lovely weekend. The autumn sun is shining. I've got a cup of tea in front of me. I'm going to talk to you. Life is lovely. Lovely. Ready to rock. So um, let's jump right in and give us a bit of, of context. What, what do you do? What are you most passionate about in, in life and, and in work at the moment? Interestingly, it came together. I was asked the same question last week and all of a sudden it popped into my head. Um, I actually am passionate and love three things. The first is I just love seeing the light come on in people's eyes when they get something, you know, when they actually understand something, maybe for the first time, even though they've heard it plenty of times. The second thing I just love is I love seeing the light come back into people's eyes when they get something at a heart level. Because getting something in, in their eyes at a head level is one thing, but getting something and you see it in their eyes when they get it at a heart level is something totally different. And the third thing I love is seeing a tribe and a community form as this happens with a group of people. And, you know, the group of people can be a department, they can be a team, they can be a whole organization, they can be a group of friends after a really wonderful dinner party. But I love that. I love seeing people come back to life and coming back to life together. And so where I am at the moment is I am actually in a bit of a flex stage, um, oh, trying those. to decide. Oh, yeah, no, they are exciting. Hey? Uh, and terrifying. And, they are, and terrifying and exhilarating because I suppose another thing that I love is the sense of possibility that comes with these flux times and that idea that, you know, I mean, it's not my idea, it's not an original one, but certainly it's a powerful one, that idea that life's got to be lived forwards but can only be understood backwards. And so I'm in this stage now of having left quite a big corporate role at the end of last year and trying to decide what comes next. Do I set myself up? Uh, permanently in my own role? Do I do some interesting things in anticipation of the next big role, which may be in business because that's where I've been before. It may be in the public sector because I've been in um, that, or it may be in civil society, the not-for-profit sector. And so it feels like this great time of possibility and opportunity and reinvention, paradoxically at a time and in a season in Joburg where everything's shutting down for winter, I feel like I'm blossoming and coming back to life. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. 
And I know you have so much uh, history and experience just across different sort of sectors and, and businesses, but I'm, I'm curious about the, those three things that you're, you're passionate about. Um, specifically, when somebody gets something at a heart level, how do you know? What are the clues that you see or that you witness that make your heart sort of maybe match up to theirs and go, oh, they got it? I think you see it on their face, eh? Hey? Mm. Their face changes and their eyes change. And I've seen it in lots of spaces and times. I'm sure I've, I've given the same expression when people have gotten through to me. Sure. But something softens. Something softens in their face, something softens in their heart, and their whole energy shifts. And in more than a few environments that I've been in, it's interesting how a lot of people wear cynicism as a badge of honor and they polish it up very shinily, shinily and brightly and proclaim to anybody who will listen that they're a cynic. Yeah. And, you know, in my experience, cynics are just disillusioned idealists. Completely, um, and completely. Yeah. And when that idealism and sense of possibility and sense of being seen as a person and being heard as a person and being vulnerable and that vulnerability is safe and safely held, when people, and I include myself in that, when we get into that space, I think everything just softens and you it's impossible not to see it if you're looking. And it takes a bit of bravery and sometimes taking the first step in order to uh, start those conversations, be vulnerable and, and sort of give the other per person permi permission to do the same? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've just come from a two-day very powerful, very special immersion in KwaZulu-Natal, which is a province of South Africa. And so for two days, we were led through a process with a woman who is a uh, Brene Brown facilitator and I see one of the other people that you interviewed was also one Yeah. and so for two days we spent time together a group of strangers in a kind of peri-urban rural area of South Africa it's the township area of um, Inanda in Durban and you know in the South African history township areas where we're pretty much where black Indian and coloured people were sent away from city centres away from white suburbs so they don't have great infrastructure by and large. I mean, some have got great houses and streets and, you know, very expensive homes. But generally, they're poor. They're away from the city centers. They're away from the centers of economic activity. And people live in very humble homes or in shacks. Um, and life is not generally great there in terms of education, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of economic opportunities. Sure. And these two days we spent... Um, the first day was at the Ochlange Institute where the founder of the ANC, John Dube, lived and is buried. And I didn't know that Nelson Mandela actually asked for his release from prison to be postponed so that it could happen on the 11th of February 1990 because that was the day, date that John Dube was born and then subsequently died years later. So Nelson wow. Mandela wanted it to correspond with those you know, with the 11th of February. And then when it came to casting his vote in the first democratic elections in South Africa in 94, out of all the places in this huge country he could have gone to, he went to the Ochlange Institute where John Dube is buried, wow. cast his vote with the whole world's media watching, yeah. and then went to his grave and went to tell him, uh, Mr. President, 
I've just come to let you know that South Africa is finally free, which was so moving. And that was the first warning. And then the afternoon was thinking about, you know, how we dare greatly, how we show up with courage in our own lives. And then the second day, after having spent the day at the seminary for uh, girls, it was a leading school for black girls in, in South Africa at a time when Bantu education made it all but impossible for black people to get a quality education. And then in the afternoon, we spent um, some time at uh, Mahatma Gandhi's house, also in Inanda. So this is a simple experience, but it, I'm reminded of it because it's so timely in what you're saying mm. about this idea of being courageous. Because, of course, that was the whole premise of the two days, and that is the premise of Brene Brown's work and this idea that vulnerability is courage in you, but weakness in me. And it's the first thing I look for in you, but very often the last thing I want to show in myself. And so, I mean, I've read her books and I've got it at a head level, but these two days, gosh, they were really about getting them at the heart level. And two days of thinking about when am I courageous? What does it take to be courageous? And it's you know, the point for that, different people. Oh, absolutely. And the point that I was sharing was, you know, I've done some interesting things in my life and people have said, gosh, that's really brave, to which I've had no choice but to honestly respond that actually it's not been brave for me because mm. I haven't been afraid of that. Even though it's something that would scare you, it didn't scare me, maybe because I was too young or too stupid or too ignorant or too optimistic, who knows? I mean, there could have been plenty of reasons why I wasn't scared. But there are things that, that scare me deeply. And when I do those things, which may not scare you deeply, that's when I'm courageous. Well, so what, what is one of those things? What is one of the things that scares you deeply and would be, take great courage for you to enact? I suppose I read it years ago when I was still a teenager, that idea that so many people still die with the music still inside them. And that that incredible Marianne Williamson quote, which is often attributed to Nelson Mandela and you know wrongly attributed to him, that we're not afraid of our darkness, we're afraid of our light. And and it scares me to think how to reconcile those two, you know. Um, how to not go to my grave, which could be at any stage, with music still inside me and not be afraid of what that music might sound like if I actually play it, if I actually am not scared to play it in its fullness and in its messiness and in its beauty and in its confusion. That scares me. Leaving a job without another job lined up doesn't scare me. Backpacking when I was young (laughs) by myself doesn't scare me. That scares me. Um, and that, that thought that I might not, and the thought that I, there are things that I can't not do, and yet I step away from them. Oh my God, this is so, this resonates with me so much, like not being scared of the, the darkness, but of the light. Um, I did a talk last week at, yeah. at a, a, a big bank, and it was Mental Health Awareness Week, and I'd had this talk prepared, and I expected there to be about 300 people in the room, and they were filming it, and then I said, oh, hey, can I get a copy of that, uh, the film, you know, and they said, oh, yeah, sure, don't worry, it's being live-streamed on YouTube, and so um, I was, <laughs> I know, I was prepared to be quite vulnerable and tell a lot 
part of my story um, to this group of 300 people. What I wasn't prepared to do was be quite vulnerable and tell my story to possibly the world, whoever wants to watch it forever and all time, you know? Um, And so I was deeply nervous, but I showed up anyway and, um, you know, uh, went to places that I hadn't gone to in, in other talks before. And my God, what Brené Brown talks about the vulnerability hangover the next day. Um, oh my God, it was stark. I was like, fuck, what have I done? Uh, and I was on this platform and I thought, nobody's ever going to hire me again. Like that's literally what was in my head. I was like, nobody's ever going to hire me. Um, and then interestingly, as always, slowly on social media, people were private messaging me and people were saying that really touched me or that really moved me. Um, the COO of the bank said, Petra, we are so happy that you spoke. Everyone else was sales pitchy and you were real. Can we go for lunch? Let's talk about business. And I'm just like, how has any of this happened? Um, but also, uh, tomorrow evening, I'm doing a talk with an expat community about how to have, how to forge meaningful connections because we can be so good at adapting our behavior to make other people comfortable. Um, but it's actually when we're truly ourselves that we give people permission to truly be themselves. Um, so this is resonating with me and also giving me courage and ideas for the, the upcoming stuff that I have. Um, but it's such a privilege to, to be that person that connects other people. So, um, Niven, give us a little bit of context just about your, your own childhood, uh, your, your parents. Did, did you know, the, the parent society, your education system prepare you for life in the adult world? Gosh, I'm wondering if anybody's ever answered yes to that question from you, Petra. Um, I've had some yes, yes and no's. Um, really? Gosh, really? Yeah, but, but mostly maybe because of perspective of saying it didn't feel like it at the time, but actually I, had, I got this from them and it set me on the path to something. So I've had a few people. Um, but yeah, mostly it's like, fuck no. <laughs> I had to figure this all out by myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose... I mean, my parents were very young when they had me. My mom was 19, my father's 21st birthday was his wedding Uh, so his 21st party was his wedding um and I popped out and I think my parents still say that I don't quite know what to make of me (laughs) in the best possible most loving most proud way um they they can't quite figure me out you know and I think I think if they prepared me for anything it was giving me permission to figure it out, knowing that they couldn't really help. So, you know, my parents were huge rebels at school mm-hmm. and I popped along as this really nerdy overachiever academic um, hot shots. And then I became a head girl in the final year of school, which was a big deal, um, is a big deal um, in high school. Sure. And my parents just looked at this with astonishment thinking, gosh, we don't know what to do with this, but we're very proud of you and congratulations. And we don't know where you came from. Yeah. And then, you know, after school, um, there was this like, expectation that, well, because you've gotten good marks and because you've gotten into all these leadership positions, well, you have to go do something remarkable. And I had no idea what to do. I was 17 and I was clueless, as I think most 17-year-olds are, but don't know it yeah. um, because you're so full of confidence of in some areas. Yeah. And my mother, bless her, 
said to me, well, well, my father had said, listen, you know, if you want to go to university, uh, we can't help because we didn't go to university, so we don't know what to suggest. Sure. And we can't pay for it. We simply don't have the money, so you would have to pay for it yourself. Yeah. And my mother then, in her infinite maternal wisdom, looked at me and said, you know, there was a, a girl who was the daughter of one of our teachers at school who had taken a gap year and gone to a kibbutz in Israel. And, you know, gap years were very unknown. Apartheid was still in full force in South Africa. So we were a very closed off sure. country. I'd never left the country before. Yeah. And my mom had saved some money from housekeeping. You know, God bless the 80s when women still got housekeeping from their husbands to go buy food and what have you. Yeah. Um, and so she'd saved some money and she said, look, I think you should go. And you've always wanted to go to a kibbutz. Why? I don't know, because I'm not Jewish. I don't have <laughs> Jewish lineage. But I've always, I think in a previous life, I must have been Jewish um, because I love the sense of community and the the way that Jewish people show up in the world and Jewish friends of mine. So I got on a plane um, and people were horrified, saying to my parents, but what are you thinking? She's 18 years old and she's only been 18 for three weeks and you're sending her overseas by herself to a foreign country. Yeah. Um, Crazy. Where she knows no one, and she's going to have to figure it out. Are you people insane? Yeah. But they, they were, I think, incredibly trusting and courageous of me, and of the world, and they sent me off, and it was the best thing that they could have done, um, because I came back two and a half years later, for the first time, and oh, so wow. I think, yeah, I think when I was younger, I certainly wanted my parents to be very clear on what I could and couldn't do, what I should and shouldn't do, and give me all these boundaries and clear limitations. But actually, I think with hindsight, the fact that they trusted me and allowed me to figure things out, as tough as it was at the time, was probably the best gift that they could have given me. So and this it, idea that... Go ahead. No, no, sorry. That just, this idea, you know, that give your kids roots and wings. Yeah. Gosh, if parents can get that right, isn't that an amazing gift? Roots and wings. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm going back to my childhood in hippie communes, and, and I left home at 16 and was in Russia at 17. Um, yes. So I, I feel like we veered on the side of too many wings, maybe. Um, but equally, it gives you that sense of resilience, character building, ability to uh, thrive, no matter what the challenges or adversity. Um, what, what did your two and a half years give you? Well, well, it was in total four years because I came back, oh, I went for another six months, and then went back for another year. Wow. Um, I think it, I think it was very much exactly what you said. That sense of resilience and that sense of I can pitch up anywhere, and I can figure things out. I can figure out a new country. I can figure out a place to stay. I can figure out how to find a job, even when I don't speak the language. And I can constantly rely on the kindness of strangers. You know, this idea that the world is divided into two kinds of people, those who think the world is a friendly place and those who think that it's an unfriendly place. Yeah. And I'm not naive and I'm not sure. I'm not without awareness of the risks that face all of us. But fundamentally my whole experience was about, gosh, put myself out there go to interesting places, meet interesting people, and just be constantly looked after in the most kind and supportive way. And I think 
I was just sharing at the session that we had that I was mentioning earlier last week, the story of a girl that I read a few years ago, um, a young girl, she's about 26, 27. And, you know, South Africa has got so many facets to it, but, um, as a, as a country, good grief, we're really good at falling into the dangerous trap of telling a single story about ourselves and to ourselves. Yeah. And the other thing in South Africa and the us and them, which can cleave in so many ways and on so many dimensions. Anyway, this girl decided one day I'm really tired of the single story of South Africans and the idea that we live in a dangerous country with people that can't be trusted and horrible crime. So she put on her backpack, left her parents' home um, in Johannesburg and left with a hundred rand, which is, you know, less than nothing. a tenner. Yeah. Um, nothing, not a cell phone, not a bank card, nothing. And she thought, I'm going to rely on the kindness of strangers. Uh, and see where it takes me in South Africa. And so she went all around for almost a year, and people fed her and clothed her and helped her and were unbelievably careful um, in showing, careful of her and her safety and, and her well-being. And the one story that I shared was she ended up in rural KwaZulu-Natal, which is the same province I was in last week. So it's one of those provinces in South Africa that are full of kind of parallel universes and you can feel like you can go you're going to not just a parallel universe in terms of poverty sometimes but to a parallel century so that you know the deep rural areas don't have running water don't have electricity the kids are really disadvantaged and then the really wealthy areas are some of the wealthiest people in the country yeah and so she was in one of the rural areas um it was starting to get dark she came across a woman um, an old Zulu woman who spoke as much English as she spoke Zulu, so very little. But through sign language and whatever, they managed to understand each other. And this woman was asking her, you know, where are you going? Where are you sleeping tonight? Where do you come from? What's going on? And and she had nowhere to sleep yet that night. So this woman took her to her hut and shared what little food she had with her. And they slept on the floor, as is traditional, and they woke up in the uh, in the morning, and this woman was still very worried about her as she got on the road and was going to head off into the sunrise. And so worried that she went to her garden, um, not so much a garden, but a piece of open land, and she dug up a five-rand coin, and a five-rand coin, you know, is worth about 30p. You can't even buy chocolate in South Africa with a five-rand. Yeah. Um, that's how money it is. But I sat there and I thought, good grief, um, the level of poverty that you are experiencing such that you bury a five rand coin yeah. and the level of generosity right. that you give the five rand coin to another person and to another woman's child. And so I, I just, I think I learned all of that and I was exposed to all of that and I learned that the world is a huge place, but it's also a very small place and that people are people wherever you go. You know, we look different, we have different customs and cultures and we live in different homes and we eat different food, but fundamentally people are people and it's such a cliche, but I mean, it's cliches are just truths told often and often and again and again. Eh? Absolutely. Amazing. I got chills listening to that story just about kindness and generosity because I'm, I'm definitely am one of those people that I think, yes, I've been hurt and yes, I've had pain in my life, um, but I still choose to trust the, the world and individuals and the, the, have optimism about the kindness of humanity. Um, do you think those early sort of formative experiences just helped with your 
you know, you said it's not courageous for you to leave a job in order to jump into the unknown. Um, do you feel like those formative experiences gave you that sort of bravery in business? I think so. You know, I think that idea that I will always figure it out, um, that I'm charting my own path and that I need to be true to that. They're not, I, ha I haven't um, proclaimed a declaration of independence. I'm purely by myself. I mean, I'm clearly like all of us connected to lots of other people. Sure. But the idea that to thine own self be true, um, it, it, I just, I don't know how not to do that. I love that. I don't know how not to do that. Um, so, so take us a little bit further along the journey, and it may uh, coincide with some of those those four years. But as the theme of the podcast is around adversity, and I refer a lot to the idea of a, a rock bottom or a catalyst moment that people experience, uh, which allows them to sort of move their lives forward in some way. Do you relate at all to the idea of having a rock bottom, or more generally, to adversity in your life? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, what comes up? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it was so much as so much of a rock bottom as a before and after experience. So who I was before and who I was afterwards and who I was going to be capable of being afterwards was not the same. Um, yeah. yeah, it sounds like it exactly a what a rock bottom might be like for people. Yeah, so for mine, it was an incredibly... Um, destructive relationship that I was in probably about gosh it must be about 17 years ago now and so I would have been 29 and I know now that that relationship was meant to teach me things but at the time it was incredibly um, painful and yes. the thing that really helped me at the time as I tried to navigate something that was quite toxic and unpleasant was I thought back to my parents' marriage and I mean my parents are incredibly interesting, decent, lovely people. And they didn't have for a long time a great marriage. Um and I know it would really devastate and hurt my mom to hear me saying this publicly. Um but it wasn't great for them and, and it wasn't great being a child in the marriage either. Mm. And I'm so thrilled that they've found the people that they love now. And I'm so thrilled that they found the friendship that they have in, in years since they've gotten divorced with each other, because they're both, like I say, incredibly special people. But in this relationship with Stephen, when I was really questioning a lot of things, I remember reading something that said, children who come from dysfunctional relationships or who grow up in dysfunctional relationships consciously say, uh, when I'm older, when I'm in a relationship with somebody, God help me, but I'm never going to have that. Yeah. I am going to, it's going to be completely different. It's going to feel safe and secure and, you know, the complete opposite of what I often feel now as a kid. And so that's the conscious Wish. Absolutely. Subconsciously, though, and unconsciously, we they gravitate towards, <laughs> yeah, and they gravitate toward what's familiar. Hey? Yeah, absolutely. And so then they repeat a pattern, and they're thinking, I was thinking, but how in heaven's name did I end up in the space? Because I was adamant that I wasn't going to. Sneaks up on and you, doesn't I, it? It does. <laughs> it does. Isn't that fun? 
And I suddenly realized, hold on a second. Um, what am I repeating here? And going a, a, a level deeper, you know, what am I actually worth here? Because if I carry on like this, um, I clearly don't think I'm worth a huge amount. And where is this coming from? And so it felt, it, it felt takes a like lot a real self-awareness to do that by yourself, doesn't it? Without maybe the help of, of a friend holding a mirror up to your behavior or a therapist or someone that you trust. Well, I did actually go to a therapist um, okay. after we broke up. Um, I broke up with Stephen and it was, yeah, and then I really had to try to make sense of what was going on and what happened there and um, why I allowed myself to be in that space. Yeah. And so I got all manner of help from people who loved me and from a therapist. And then about a year later, I met Yvette, who I'm, who's my partner now, and we've been happily together, very happily together for 15 years. And so that was a big shift from dating men to now being married to a woman and to being in a relationship where I really had to question what I was worth to being in one now where, yeah, I mean, you know, Yvette looks at me most days, not the days when I don't take out the rubbish, not the days when she's tripping over my shoes in the dining room, but every other day, you know, she looks at me like I am the best thing since sliced bread. And I feel that and I know that in her space. And it's it's a complete pivot in my life and in relationships and in my belief of what relationships had to be, which is, you know, they always have to be hard work. That's just what they are. And so what changed in your belief system or in your behavior during that in-between year um, that allowed you to show up in a different way, unconsciously perhaps, in order to attract the, the beautiful relationship you have with Yvette? That's an interesting question. I suppose I allowed myself time to and space to mourn. Um, I've never thought about it, but I've never been asked that question. And I suppose to mourn a lot of things that happened with me and in that relationship and things that might have been that weren't and things that were that shouldn't have been. And to actually just sit with that mm. and to to grieve and to mourn, I suppose. And so, so I was still mm. fully functional. You know, I didn't... Sure. But it sounds like you, you created space to process not only the relationship and how you let it get there, but your whole sort of patterns of behavior that had allowed yeah. you from childhood to be, to be drawn to the familiar. It's like you, you got some help to challenge the assumptions of your own worth uh, and what you needed and almost free yourself a little bit. Or do you think you consciously looked for something completely opposite or did it just come to you? No, no it was the former. Right. And so before I explain, I mean, let me say when I was fully, the fact that I, I feel the need to say that I was fully functional is because there have been times when I have not been fully functional. That interestingly was a time that I was fully functional despite. Right. But I, I think it, it was the former in answer to your question. And I remember sitting with a very, very, very dear friend who I had gone to for a Reiki session 
And I hadn't quite known what Reiki was, but I thought I need to try something where I don't have the chance to intellectualize and think about this, where something happens on the energy level and it just gets taken care of at a different level while I'm thinking about all of this. And Rachel was the therapist and, like I say, subsequently become a very dear friend. And I remember us going through this exercise where she said to me with such kindness, um, you know, the things that allowed you to get to this stage of your life and the mechanisms and defenses and coping tools that you had to get you to this point in your life, you've got to be proud of that and you've got to be grateful for that and you've got to look at the child who developed those and just give her the biggest hug of pride and gratitude and thanks and approval. And now it's maybe time to let go of some of those and let that child go. And, yeah, I mean, you know, the way you responded was how I was responding. And I thought, okay, maybe I should. Maybe I can. But, yeah, I mean, huge to even imagine that you can. But it's really scary, too, because those are the, the tools and the skills that you know, brought us to the places that we are in our life, despite all the, despite the odds or the challenges that, that perhaps we faced. So letting go or giving yourself permission to think in a different way um, and breathe into your existence or even kind of appreciate how far you've come and enjoy the, like learn to enjoy the journey rather than just be in a, in a fighting for it phase. That's what's resonating for me anyway. Yeah. And I think there were a couple of things in what Rachel said to not criticize myself um, for having mechanisms that had outlived their usefulness, to acknowledge that I needed them to get to this point, but they have now outlived their usefulness. Yeah. And at the same time, I suppose not throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there are things that will stand me in good stead for the rest of my life. So keep those, but put down the ones that don't serve me. And what, what, I'm just curious now about a time in your life when you weren't functional or when you weren't able to uh, thrive, survive through something in this sort of functional way. Yeah, so I, one of the roles that I've had, and I, I take my work really personally. So I invest myself hugely in work that I'm doing, and I get enormous meaning out of the work that I do and how it allows me to show up in the world and impact the world. And one of the roles that I had was I was heading up a not-for-profit that looked after orphaned and vulnerable children in South Africa after the HIV crisis pretty much decimated South Africa and it's getting better now, but we still have upwards of one and a half million orphaned and vulnerable children in this country. And so this not-for-profit provided all manner of care to about 26,000 kids um, a day through two provinces and I was the first CEO of of it. It had been started by a plastic surgeon, Greg Ash, who felt he needed to do something in South Africa and it suddenly became incredibly successful in terms of funding. Uh, So there was all kinds of money and support flowing in and, and no processes or systems to hold the team together to know what we were doing to report to donors and so they brought me in as a CEO to do that. And at the same time, we were really battling with uh, my mom being incredibly sick. 
And I managed to hold it together uh, for quite a while. But eventually I had to go to my board of directors and say, I can see uh, that if I take one more step forward, I'm going to fall off of a cliff of burnout. And it's going to take a a long time for people who love me to put the pieces back together because I am actually, I, I have no more reserves. And there are plenty of people who can cope with this kind of emotional strain. I'm, I'm just not able to cope now. And it was such a, it was such an incredibly sad thing to say, but it was also such a relief because for so long I'd been using all the energy that I had to spare to tell myself, you know, who do you think you are to be taking strain uh, running this organization? You're dealing with kids who at 13, 14, 15 are heading up households, taking care of their siblings. You're working with women whose children are all dead and so they're the grandmother having to take care of their grandchildren on a pension which wouldn't you know, wouldn't keep me alive for two days in Johannesburg. So who the hell do I think I am to be taking strain? I'm educated. I'm being paid to do this. I've got all kinds of support. And that relief on the day when I actually just said, okay, so, you know, I don't know who the hell I think I am, but I am actually finding this impossible. And it might be self-pity and it might be inexcusable given that this for other people is their life it's not just a job that they can walk away from but I have to accept that this is how I'm feeling so what were the the clues though that that made you feel that way because that's incredibly brave I mean scary humble you know in the sense where you would have been at a crisis point in order to put yourself in the position to say those things I imagine Um, so what were the clues in your body or your own mind that this was going on for you I think it was the sense of kind of daily despair and just feeling like I was putting on my armor every day to try to cope. And it was interesting that your first question was around what were the clues in your body because, I mean, I take what my body is telling me incredibly seriously because it's it's not just a figurative expression, but it's a literal truth, the things that happen. Well, when, especially so if you're, ta- you're talking about burnout. No, so I'm talking about a couple of things. So... I had put on an enormous amount of weight and I, one day I looked at myself and it wasn't because I was exercising any less or eating any more. And I just looked at myself the one day with some degree of compassion and I just thought, what's going on here? And I thought, I am literally carrying too much and I can see it in my body. And it, I, I've seen the truth of the opposite a few years ago when something Horrible happened, and I lost an enormous amount of weight. I became dangerously thin. And I looked at myself, and I thought, now what's going on here? It's all evidence, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I thought, in that instance, I was literally eating myself up about what had happened. And so I think it was all manner of things. I think it was that sense of despair rather than delight at having to try to cope with another day and feeling like we were never going to make an impact. I was never going to make an impact in this enormous challenge and the physical signs that were becoming glaring for me. And then just the care and concern of people around me saying, you know, not sure that you're coping at your best at the moment. And so my board was incredible and they said, okay, you know, we get it. Um, so I had to caretake the organization for a while until 
we could find another CEO. And then basically I took a year off to read. I did absolutely nothing except read. I didn't do consulting work. I didn't travel. I just read, um, which on some levels might be utterly dysfunctional. And on other levels, I knew that I needed to do that. And thank heavens I've got the care and support of a partner who's fine, you know. I'll see you when I see you. Not literally. I mean, I was in the lounge uh, reading. <laughs> yeah. Metaphorically. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but in, in a way, noticing the signs and being able to say those things beats um, working yourself into the ground to the point where your body and your mind simply can't cope anymore. Like you actually have a have some kind of a, a crash um, that makes you do the same thing that you had to do anyway. Um, so it sounds like you made a choice that would allow you to nurture yourself, but also reflect on the next stage in your work, growth, development. Yeah, life. Yeah, life. Yeah, and 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 being supported in that choice is the most incredible gift that my board gave me. All of whom are very high-powered business people in Africa. And yeah, I thought, were you scared that they wouldn't support you or get it or understand? Um, I thought that they might not, but even if they didn't, uh, I was going to have to do it. And so it was such a gift when they did look at me with nothing other than kindness and support and said, you know, we've all been in that stage. The difference between you and many of us is not that you feel this, because we all feel it at some point, but that you're doing something about it. And then being supported by Yvette um, to just say, that's fine, you know, uh, it'll be fine. And so... Uh, I, I imagine that we could talk for hours just about other uh, challenges that you've faced and how you've gotten through them, um, specifically uh, in your personal life, but also your, your business. Um, but for the sake of time, I mean, what advice would you give to someone who is struggling or to your own younger self that's experiencing some of these challenges, either in that relationship uh, or in, in workplaces or other struggles that you've had? What are the key things you've learned that have allowed you to keep moving forward in the way that you have? Yeah, gosh. <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell, on a bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think when I, I, I remember when I was doing, having my own business a few years ago, and a friend of mine said, you know, you're so inextricably linked with your own business that when it's not going well, it feels like I'm a failure. Um, and so you don't reach out. And the same is true of relationships. The same is true in so many things. I think for me, this work from Brene Brown that I was going through last week, the difference between guilt and shame and humiliation and embarrassment is such an important one that lay at the heart of what he was saying about not reaching out and about me when I haven't reached out. What's laying at the heart of that is a sense of shame that I'm not good enough, that I'm not interesting enough, that I'm not together enough. And the power in moving from shame, which makes us feel unworthy of connection, and therefore we don't get the connection. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and a horrible spiral into such doubt about myself, my life, my worth, my value. And to know that that spiral and that trap is a universal human one, and to 
take a deep breath and to step out and to find connection when I feel least worthy of it and to ask for help when I feel least capable of it. Gosh, that is a lesson that I have learned but am still learning and I think we'll need to learn for the rest of my life. It's so hard. How, oh, good grief. Um, and so I suppose there's a couple of things in that stream of consciousness answer that understanding that of making mistakes and being a mistake is not the same thing. So wait, that say, idea, that, say that again, making a mistake well and being a mistake is not the same thing. That's so deep. Which is, mm. Yeah. And I mean, that's Brene Brown's work, right? The mm -hmm. difference between guilt and a mistake that you've made it's shame yeah. for feeling that you're a mistake. Yeah. And at the same time as knowing that it's connections with other people and support and empathy and just quietness as I struggle with something that most helps me. Also, at the same time, realizing sometimes I need to just go away and I need to literally and metaphorically shut the door on the world for a day, for a few days, and I'll come back when I'm better. And that they're not mutually exclusive. And so I, Yvette knows Sometimes I just don't have the strength to face the world today, and so I don't. I have a duvet day. I switch off my email. I switch off my cell phone. I don't talk to her. I don't talk to anyone. She comes home in the evening, and I'm feeling a lot better because I have done nothing all day, absolutely nothing. And do, you, and do you have any sort of routines or practices that allow you to develop your ability to listen to your intuition around that? Or just over the years have you, uh, you know, through experience, you understand what your body or your mind are telling you? How do you know think, what you need when you need it? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. A friend of mine talks about the anchor habits that we all need to have in our life. You know, as things go crazy around us, what are the things that anchor us? And for me, it's it's definitely being physical. So I have to go for a run. I have to talk to this friend when I go running. I have to sit and think at the end of the day. I have to sit and think at the beginning of the day. So these anchor habits, um, I think, are critical and they keep me going and not just keep me going in a surviving kind of way, but in a thriving way as well. And then there are times when I can just feel today I can't, today I won't. And when I feel that I'm peaceful with the fact that today is one of those days I've just got to stop and put everything down. And so practicing some self-compassion and not punishing yourself for not being good enough, it sounds like that's the journey you, you've been on so that you give yourself permission to recharge in a healthy way. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen that it's a journey that Yvette had to go on with me as well because she watched me for the first few years thinking, oh dear, she's doing something wrong. You know, she's not fixing this. She right. needs to make it better. And now she just waves me off as she heads to work so lovely it's self-compassion it's compassion for all kinds of things I suppose all kinds of people who care about you not many of whom get to see the side of me so the person who loves me probably the most as much as I'm loved by other people and the person who sees me in all kinds of state states and stages is the one who also has to practice some compassion for herself to let it go and say it's not her fault it's just one of those days Amazing. Amazing. Um, what does the future hold for you within this transition period? What do you hope it holds? Even if it's not like the job title, but what are you looking for to fulfill you? That's what I'm figuring out. Eh? <laughs> That's what I'm figuring out. But today, 
Today, I can tell you I'm going for a bridge lesson from two to four. And oh, so yeah. that is definitely something to look forward to. I love that, you, so, yeah, that you, expect, you try and expand your, your interests and your mind just through trying new things. Yes. Um, and so I, I don't know, but uh, I will know in a while and it'll be lovely when I do. And it's lovely figuring it out in the meantime as well. And so what I'm learning so much is enjoying the journey. And what I've been trying to learn is how to create space so that I'm not in a reactive trying to, to fill my time way, even though I have amazing projects and, and lovely things that I do. But um, this has just reminded me to create space to, to reflect and make choices and enjoy the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that it's reminded you of that. As you've said it, it's reminded me as well. So Lovely. let's remind each other. On let's remind each basically. other. Enjoy the journey, everyone. <laughs> Nevin, if people want to connect with you in any way on, on social media or anywhere, where can they find you? So LinkedIn's probably the best, Petra. Uh, Nevin Postma or Nevin Postma at gmail.com. Lovely. We'll add that into the show notes. Nevin, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. I appreciate you talking to me so much. Enjoy your day. Thank you, and you too. Thank you so much for listening. If something helped you today, please do share this episode with a friend and let them know that they are not alone. I know that for me, isolation kept me stuck much longer than I needed to be. So let's practice courage and talk to someone about what's going on, as that's the first step to making life amazing. Check out my website, petravelsbore.com, for your free Kickstarter plan, which will teach you to turn your biggest weaknesses into your greatest strengths. Join the community of people who are changing the way they view life's challenges and living life to the full. Until next time, goodbye.